You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered. Listener-supported. Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting for WFHB, this is Cade Young. And I'm Noelle Herhusky-Schneider. This is the WFHB Local News for Wednesday, February 28th, 2024. Later in the program, we have the final part of our series about food insecurity on Deep Dive, WFHB and Limestone Post Investigate. More in today's feature report. Also coming up in the next half hour, the talk is ticking on Better Beware, your weekly consumer watchdog segment on WFHB. More following today's feature. This is Deep Dive, WFHB and Limestone Post Investigate, where we look into issues regarding health, housing, and the environment that directly impact residents of Monroe County. Today, we continue our coverage on food insecurity in Monroe and Brown Counties. In today's installment of Deep Dive, WFHB News spoke with Liz Barnhart, the Community Outreach Coordinator for Mother Hubbard's Cupboard in Bloomington, Indiana. We are a community food resource center that has been serving Bloomington since 1998. Uh, We're mostly known uh, as a food pantry where we serve 25,000 people per year and distribute over 1 million pounds of food. But we also have programming like gardening, cooking classes, youth programming, tool share, uh, and advocacy work as well. She says the purpose behind an organization like Mother Hubbard's Cupboard isn't just to provide food. It is to provide community building. So it's less about teaching and it's more about community building. So we don't think that by teaching skills like cooking and gardening that people are going to magically pull themselves out of poverty. Mm -hmm. That's just not the reality. Um, Instead, what we like to focus on is we are living in a community where we want to take care of each other because we live in this this place that has such vast and and varied collective knowledge. Uh, And when we share that with each other, then We are building something bigger than just teaching cooking classes or teaching gardening. Um, We're learning about what everyone else knows. So we don't focus a lot on us teaching people stuff. We try to bring people in to teach us stuff um, and to teach each other stuff. Uh, And then we also know who in our community has these resources. It's just the idea of taking care of each other. It's not that we have ownership over our space. It is that our space is a place for people to use to make community. We do hub lunches and dinners where people can just come in and have a meal and just talk about what's going on in their community. Uh, We do advocacy work. So we try to address the root causes of hunger. So why do people need our services in the first place? Um, We do stuff like register people to vote. We uh, connect people to other resources like SCAP for energy assistance, um, rental assistance. We have the library come in and do that. We try to build a network of people and resources that people can rely on when other systems have failed them. Because a lot of these systems are failing people. I had someone call a few weeks ago and she her furnace had broken And there's a few places that you can go to get your furnace fixed in town, but she is mostly blind. She is living by herself. She is disabled. She is currently, I mean, it was colder when she called living without heat. 
And because she can't see, she can't access the internet. So she can't drive herself. She can't get on the internet and fill out these forms. And so all of the services that could offer her help now cannot help her. And I know that like people will try to like work with her because a lot of the agencies in town are super rad and will like offer that. But like every day that that process takes, she is sitting there cold and alone. Um, so like we can't always rely on these safety nets. Like at a certain point, we have to rely on each other. I've changed people's tires in the parking lot because they popped the tire and they didn't have a spare. And I went to a local automotive place, which I think is closed now. And they took one off of their own car and gave it to me for free. Like that is what community is. Barnhart described what food insecurity looks like in Bloomington from her perspective working at Mother Hubbard's saying the city's high cost of living is a big factor, along with the varying transportation needs, low incomes, and the high cost of health care. So Bloomington has one of the highest costs of living in the state. Um, we also have a really high poverty rate. So it's 33.6% of people are at or below the poverty line. That is one third of people, and that is taking into account students as well. Um, one in 10 people in Bloomington don't have access to the foods that they need. Um, and then over 45% of people say that they, they would like to have better access to food. So we have this huge need. I mean, we have massive cost of living. I mean, it, the last time I checked, and this might be a little outdated, but for an average one bedroom in Bloomington, it's like $850 a month. And then you take into consideration healthcare, um, childcare. I mean, those costs are just astronomical. Uh, transportation is a huge issue in town. Um, we run a car repair uh, service, essentially, where we give people gift cards for auto repair needs. Um, and just the number of people who responded to our surveys when we were starting this program saying that they couldn't afford transportation or they didn't have transportation to get to work was just wild. Uh, we have low wages. We have um, just all of these combined factors that make it so that people can't access basic needs like food because they can't afford it. And then we also have to think about grocery costs started going up during the pandemic and they have stayed there. So it's just like a combination of all these factors um, that leads to us having a massive food insecurity rate. Another factor in Bloomington is the student population, which needs assistance. But according to Barnhart, doesn't know about the resources that are available to them off campus. So a lot of times, like when I go to speak to IU students, I do a lot of on-campus stuff. Um, they don't know that we have resources in town. And I feel like we forget about the student population a lot of the time and that they are suffering from the same issues as everyone else in the community, but they're not given the same information and they don't have the advantage of having lived here for a long time. So a lot of the times when I talk to them, I will be like, if you have questions, like shoot me an email. Uh, and sometimes they do. And that's super rad because we do see a lot of students at the pantry because food insecurity on campus is also such a big issue. I had to work three jobs while going to school full time and it sucked and I paid out of pocket. And so like, again, we go back to stigma where we think mm -hmm. that Everyone at IU has money and everyone's parents are paying for it. And it's just not true. Uh, and I feel like I feel like there should be a better system for sharing resources 
with students. But again, I have very little mm-hmm. idea of what it looks like currently besides what other students tell me. Barnhart emphasized that Mother Hubbard's Cupboard has resources for everyone in the community and that often individuals who could really benefit from using the pantry don't realize that it is available to them. Everybody <laughs> thinks that our services are for someone else. Mm-hmm. The first people to deny that they need help are usually the people who qualify for services and need help. Um, yeah, it's just it, it's stuff like that where it's like, I don't know the word for what I'm experiencing. And I know that food pantries exist, but those aren't for me. When it's like, yeah, they're for everybody who needs to eat. Like, I don't know. I just feel like there's that stigma associated with it. But because we're a community food resource center and we're not just a pantry, our programming is open to everybody. And we invite everybody to come out for our events, for our classes, for our workshops, for all of these things. Because when you get people in a room together, it never comes up on uh, whether you are a patron of the food pantry, whether you are unhoused. Like people just get in a room together and spend time together and make connection. And I, I guess that's kind of how we we do that, where it's like we encourage people to just do these things together in the same space. Um, but I mean, more to talk on like how we try to promote dignity in our pantry. Um, we don't really have strict requirements for people using our services. So we are low barrier and client choice. That means that you don't need to bring an ID. Um, you don't really have to fit into certain income qualifications in order to use our services because we understand that anybody is one medical bill away from needing help with food. Um, anything could happen to any of us and we we don't realize how close we are until something like that happens uh and then our pantry is client choice which means it's set up like a grocery store people can take as much as they need without having to justify it to us um and just trying to like grow this culture of people deserve food and that is not a point of shame we believe that access to healthy food is just a basic human right Barnhart shared that all of the nonprofits in town don't have enough resources to support everyone, leaving some without shelter. But they do their best to provide anyone who needs it with good food and to connect their guests to a network of resources. I think um, Beacon does a great job, but with all shelters, the capacity is so small and it fills up so quickly. Um, So I don't think that we have enough shelter for people who are unhoused or people who are um, housing insecure. Uh, I mean, I think it just depends on what people specifically need because a lot of stuff takes time um, and that is the problem. So places like the hub where you can just show up and you don't need to bring paperwork and you don't need to jump through hoops and you can just access that service right away. And that is like very important to us. I think that Although we do have a lot of resources, I think that the need is greater than our ability to provide. And part of that is because funding is always an issue for a nonprofit, and a lot of things that shouldn't be political uh, are, and a lot of things that shouldn't be considered radical, like the fact that everyone should have access to food and housing and water is radical, is kind of the reason why 
we don't have enough services. Yeah, we're considered a radical organization yeah. because we believe people should be able to eat. Like, yeah. And that people shouldn't just eat. There's this whole mm-hmm. thing with food pantries where uh, I forget who the quote was from, but it's like calories are calories. People should eat what we give them and be happy that they got anything at all. And I think that's silly. Um, like we focus on getting people food that is good, the food that people actually want. We have we buy directly from farmers now, so we have fresh produce almost the entire year. Uh, we focus a lot on things that people can actually use, a lot of staple ingredients. I will also just call other organizations and just be like, hey, if you can't do this, do you know a place that can? And like they always have suggestions because like, again, like the community aspect of it where it's like we are all just trying to like find the person we are trying to help the best solution. Mm-hmm. One of the many parts of my job is connecting people to resources because that's kind of one of the advocacy aspects of the job is like making sure that we have the answers when people have these questions. Uh, so I always recommend people calling 211 because they have a whole directory of resources for any request you could have. And then there is a website that I use called findinghelp.org. Um, but it is pretty straightforward where you can just go in and it'll have a list of like, do you need transportation? Do you need clothes? Do you need uh, rental assistance? And it will list every organization in town that will offer those services. Barnhart also shared some resources that residents can go to when Mother Hubbard's is not open. So I will say that the Hoosier Hills Food Bank has a resource on their website called Finding Food. Um, It's not specific to Monroe, Monroe County. They have other counties as well, but it's just a PDS PDF list of every pantry um, in the area, when they're open, their contact information, and where they're located. So there's quite a few pantries uh, that all have different availability for people. Um, And then I do know another big pantry is Pantry 279, which is closer to Ellettsville or in Ellettsville. Uh, But there's a lot of resources like that. Realistically, Barnhart said it would be nearly impossible to solve an issue such as hunger, given the system that we live in. However, in the here and now, she says she wants to help address the immediate needs in the community. Yeah, I think people ask us all of the time. So in order to get funding, a lot of the time people will say they want new and innovative solutions to stop hunger in our community. Um, And when you ask us personally, given the system that we live in, the response is we aren't going to solve hunger. Um, But when we look at it, magic wands, like I can just make changes. I mean, like, where do you even start? Because like all of the things that I've listed, I mean, we need food to be more reasonably priced. Um, We need housing to be more reasonably priced. (laughs) People should stop owning multiple houses and renting them out constantly. Like, It's so hard to buy a house in this town. So just having some sort of like regulation, (laughs) you know, everyone gets first before you get seconds, um, something I think about a lot. Mm -hmm. I mean, having childcare prices that make sense. I mean, it all comes down to like, we can't solve this. It is like deep rooted systemic issues that cause hunger. Um, And if it were up to me, I would... (laughs) 
my focus is I want everyone's basic needs taken care of so that they can like live good lives and like live happy lives. And I just don't even know. I just don't even know where to start because sometimes I feel so like helpless in it Um, because what we're doing is we're addressing the immediate immediate needs, which is necessary. That's what we need. Whether it's urban or rural, executive director of Feeding Indiana's Hungry, Emily Weicker Bryant, shared that local solutions are not enough and that it takes federal programming to address food insecurity. So when we're working to advocate uh, on behalf of our members uh, or those who are food insecure in our communities, the bulk of the work happens really at the federal level because that's there's an economy of scale. And so when you think about the nutrition programs that help families across the country, it's the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. It's school meals, school breakfast, summer meals, um, the Commodity Supplemental Program that serves seniors. There's a few things at WIC uh, for women, infants, and children. And those are all programs that are run by the federal government through the USDA that are administered at a state level. And those are the programs that really provide the most significant impact on hunger relief, mm-hmm. largely because they're they're working within existing systems, right? So the SNAP program is working on the regular rails of commerce where it's just like going in with a debit card or a gift card or a credit card using an EBT card to purchase groceries just like the rest of the community. Um, that program is is excessively efficient to run because it's not creating any new mechanisms to provide that sort of assistance. School school meals similarly are going to kids where they are every day, and so you're making sure that whether it's through a, a paid lunch, which by the way is actually subsidized, that rate is subsidized, um, or at a reduced or a free rate, you're making sure that children are getting the appropriate nutrition that they need to be healthy and active. There is some state funding in the budget every year for Indiana's food banks, including Hoosier Hills. That helps with purchase of food or um, infrastructure work to make sure that we are able to move as nimbly and as uh, efficiently as possible. But really, there's not a lot of other funding coming from government sources. uh, And quite frankly, to our members, to the food banks, there's really not funding coming from the federal government, but food through the Emergency Food Assistance Program. Um, Our members get a small amount of what the USDA calls admin money. We call it storage and distribution to make sure that we've stored the the product properly, we're moving it properly. Um, Really, the bulk of these federal nutrition programs are coming directly to the household from the federal government through the state government. And that's generally where you're going to find the most efficient program use because at a municipal level, you're talking about fewer people, you're talking about higher administrative rates, things like that, to look at a, a full-blown um, anti-hunger program. It's a, it would be a very different look. According to the Bloomington Food Access Report done in 2021, local priorities to address food insecurity are lowering food prices and raising wages, saying, quote, given that the overwhelming response from the survey sample is to lower food prices and raise wages, the first clear recommendation to the city of Bloomington and community organizations is to subsidize food costs for low-income households and incentivize living wages throughout Bloomington, end quote. 
Weikert Bryant said that although long-term solutions like increasing wages are necessary, she doesn't think that the need for food pantries will ever go away. You know, in an American society, the way that our society functions, there's always going to be someone who had that thing happen to them today that need help. So, you know, we kind of talk in, in food banking about food banking our way out of hunger. I don't think that'll ever, there'll ever be a day where we don't have someone who lost their job, had an illness, something happened that, you know, today is an emergency for them. But what we try to convey to our elected officials and, and to the folks who are making these policy decisions is that hunger is an emergency for these families. You know, it's, if I don't know what I'm going to give my kids for dinner tonight, it's, I don't have the energy to, to be productive at work because I haven't had a good meal. And so, you know, to wave a magic wand, at least in the short term, and this is something that we're working on right now, Congress is in the process of debating the next farm bill, which is the bill that authorizes any number of things, uh, things like, you know, crop insurance and conservation and other things, but there's also a nutrition title. And this is the, the big legislation that every five years reauthorizes the SNAP program, the Emergency Food Assistance Program, the Commodity Supplemental Food Program, uh, and some other smaller bits. It's the nutrition programs that don't serve children directly or that aren't, aren't targeting the child population. That's a different piece. But in the Farm Bill, we're looking at these programs that are, are serving families directly, whether it's through SNAP benefits or through food that's distributed through the charitable sector. What's important for Congress to understand and what we need for Congress to do is to make sure that when they're reauthorizing these programs, they're funding them to a level that will have an impact. And that's hard. Um, every bill that Congress does you know, they kind of have a spending limit. And so that's the conversation that's going on now. What money do we spend on this? How do we move it from one place to another? What do we want to do with these, with these programs? And the nutrition title is the largest part of the farm bill. So what we need to make sure Congress understands, if I were to wave a magic wand, uh, the baseline would be do no harm to the nutrition programs. Don't touch the funding mechanism or don't make it worse because households really don't do well on $6 per person per day. Ideally, we would look at a moderate cost food plan that has more of a reality perspective to it. Because with Thrifty, you're looking at all these different items and you're getting the best price on all of it. And let's be real, you're not going to go to one place and get the best deal on all of those items, right? Folks don't tend not to have time to shop and compare shop to the point where you're making multiple grocery store sets. So maybe let's talk about having realistic benefits. Maybe let's talk about making sure that college students are able to access the program, that folks who, you know, have somewhat meager assets that are, you know, higher than in Indiana, at least $5,000. Why are we measuring that? What's, what's really the, the point there? Um, so, it, you know, if I were waving my magic wand, it would be for Congress to pass a farm bill that improves the nutrition program to the point where folks can maybe get a little breathing room and they can make sure that they have the food that they need. They can look at healthier products that are often more expensive and, and make sure that they have enough that they can provide for their families without worrying about it and without causing 
trauma and stress over not knowing how to put food on the table. Julio Alonzo, the executive director of Hoosier Hills Food Bank, said that there isn't enough food to distribute locally. He touched on potential solutions for providing food for those who need it, saying it will take broad-scale policy change. In the here and now, he said he focuses on people with immediate needs when it comes to hunger relief. We don't have enough food. <laughs> We've almost never had enough food to, to meet the need. The only time we ever had enough food was in 2020, at the height of the pandemic, um, ironically. For the first, we've been around for 33 years now. Um, that was the first time ever and the first, the only time since that 100% of our partner agencies said they were getting enough food um, because we had huge gifts um, nationally, locally, all sorts of generosity. We were able to buy food uh, in significant amounts for the first time. And because the government stepped up and distributed significantly more food through those um, through those USDA programs. So that year, we actually had enough food to be able to say, yep, we're meeting the need. We're, we're getting it out there um, and the agencies have got what they need. Wasn't true before then, hasn't been true since then. Um, about half of our agencies last year in our survey indicated that they were not getting enough food from um, from us anymore. Um, so we know that we don't have enough. We distributed about 300,000 pounds less in 2023 than we did in 2022. Um, a lot of that can be attributed to the fact that we got about a quarter million pounds less of those federal commodities um, last year, but some local um, local food donations were also down as well. Um, so we're seeing that go down at the same time. Um, we are seeing um, um, need either rise or, or, or stay at, at um, high levels. Um, I mean, this has always been the balance and it's a challenge that food banks across the country are um, trying to deal with um, at this point. Um, my personal belief is that the most important thing we can do is make sure that everybody who needs it has food today, um, regardless of their situation, uh, regardless of, of any other circumstances. Um, Planning for the long term is not going to affect, uh, not going to help um, a child or a senior who doesn't have a meal to eat tonight. Um, we've got to make sure that that that's that's done, um, and that is an extensive undertaking. Um, I mean, we have a a staff of sixteen plus eight interns plus sixteen hundred volunteers a year, um, a warehouse, ten trucks, um, three coolers and freezers, all of that in place just to get that done um, on a regular basis. And, and it's it's still not enough. Um, many food banks are, are delving into other areas and trying to actually um, address some of the root causes. We haven't really done much of that yet, um, largely because we're focused on that main mission of getting the food rescued and getting it out to, um, to people who need it. But many food banks are also stepping up their efforts for um, for advocacy um, because that that has to be the the key to making permanent change and, and actually addressing this. Um, it's never partisan because um, as nonprofit agencies, we don't get involved in, in politics, but we are allowed to advocate for for policies um, that um, that we believe address uh, hunger and, and poverty. And quite frankly, the, the bottom line is that until there is 
actual systemic change, the policy and legislation that addresses these issues like low wages, like transportation, like childcare, like healthcare. Um, until those things are done, we're going to continue having to do what we do at high levels for a very long time. In terms of sustainability, it's sustainable as long as the public and the government will support us. Um, as long as we get donations of food, we get donations of money, we get volunteers willing to um, to support our efforts, then we can, can keep doing what we're doing and, and aim to do more of it. Um, but in terms of actually cutting down those numbers, getting people out of poverty, getting people out of food insecurity, um, there has to be policy change um, in order to uh, to achieve that. And that concludes our series on food insecurity for Deep Dive, WFHB and Limestone Post Investigate. To read the full article written by Christina Avery and Haley Miller and photographed by Olivia Bianco, visit limestonepostmagazine.com. Stay tuned for more episodes of Deep Dive in 2024, where we will cover pressing issues of health, housing, and the environment in our community. Up next, the talk is ticking on Better Beware, your weekly consumer watchdog segment on WFHB. We turn to host and producer Richard Fish for more. Here's your consumer watchdog from WFHB Community Radio with the latest information and helpful hints designed to keep your head out of the clouds, your feet on the ground, and your money in your pocket. Have you been on TikTok? I have not, but I certainly know that it's a very popular social medium owned by a Chinese company called ByteDance that lets users make and share short videos, short as in 15 seconds or so. TikTok sorts the videos into genres, and the subjects can be just about anything. But TikTok has been repeatedly slammed as a dangerous place in cyberspace, and there's some facts behind the criticism. To start with, when you're on TikTok, it's collecting a vast amount of information about you, including where you are at that moment, what's on your calendar app, what other apps you're running, what Wi-Fi networks you've been using, your phone number, your contacts, and even the serial number of the SIM card on your phone. TikTok employees can access your personal information, although the company says that can only happen in some situations. The company also claims its headquarters is in the Cayman Islands when it's really in Beijing. Can the Chinese government harvest information from TikTok? A lot of people think so. Quite a few countries like India have banned the app. The U.S. government has not banned it completely, but it has forbidden TikTok software on all federally owned devices, along with the U.K., Australia, the European Union, Canada, NATO, and others. And the state of Montana has made it illegal. 
Beyond that, like other social media, TikTok is rife with scammers. Romance scams and phishing scams are there all the time, and there's a TikTok shop which has quite a few bogus products and services which will take your money and deliver nothing. Fake celebrity accounts and fake giveaways supposedly endorsed by celebrities have had all too much success tricking younger people. After five years of success, TikTok may be on the decline. Millions of videos went silent when Universal Music Group yanked its huge catalog, claiming TikTok was teaching artificial intelligence programs on its music without compensating the musicians. There's been a huge increase in advertising on TikTok also, including a lot of so-called health products that are a lot like the old snake oil patent medicine peddlers. Many users have been turned off by a lot of right-wing conspiracy theory posts. And TikTok's attempts to regulate things like hate speech haven't worked so well. Ziggy Tyler, a TikTok user, reported that supporting black people was flagged as inappropriate content, but supporting white supremacy was not. And TikTok's algorithm also approved I am a neo-Nazi and I am anti-Semitic, while blocking I am a black man, the phrase Asian women, and the intersex hashtag. TikTok has even changed the shape of people's faces in the videos they put up. TikTok has been pretty hot, but maybe it isn't really cool. I'm Richard Fish for WFHB News and Public Affairs. Better Beware comes to you from WFHB Bloomington, Indiana. Find all our episodes at WFHB.org. If you can help put the kibosh on a con, email beware at WFHB.org. Remember, swindlers never give a sucker an even break.